Good evening and welcome to the Midnight Owl. I'm your host, Bad Bets. The Midnight Owl is a proud member of the Not After 30 podcast network. This episode is about being a gamer. Leroy Jenkins! Hey folks, it's been a while. This episode has had a bunch of starts and stops. In part, life got busy. It happens. But more than that, I was having trouble putting pen to paper to explain my thoughts on gamer culture. It feels disingenuous to talk like I know what it is to be a gamer. To pretend like I understand the ins and outs of that world, when in reality, I'm just a casual. A newbie. An FNG. Fucking new guy. I play video games all the time. I love picking up a new game. So I decided to go ahead with this episode because not knowing anything about a subject has never stopped me from writing an episode before, so why would I stop now? Also, I had a few hundred words written and it seemed like a waste to not just muscle through it, so here it is. In this episode, I want to try to tell the story of my generation of gamers. I wanted to show you how big and diverse the world of gaming is. To be fair, my experience is limited to those I have gamed with, the times that I have had. Gaming is a distinct, unique subculture from all other variations of nerd pursuits. We are this crossroads that all these warring factions of what title or series is better can come together and get along. Gaming is the common ground. Being a gamer is more socially acceptable than the readers or cult classic TV watchers. It's less cool than the Marvel moviegoers, which seems to be the popular form of nerd these days. You know, the Bazinga crowd. Hopefully one day I can get to know other gamers better and help tell their story and experience to show how we are the same. Then again, on the other hand, maybe I don't want to. I was listening to a podcast recently, the Glass Cannon podcast, and one of the guys said he was trying to play Call of Duty or something like that, and these like little kids were yelling at him, telling him to uninstall. How brilliant is that as an insult? Not you suck, not a stream of swear words, just uninstall. There's a poetic ring to that gut punch. The story of gamers is in-depth and complicated, and beyond the scope of what the owl can currently handle. Despair not, dear listener. I'll come back when I do have those skills and that knowledge. Maybe by telling my story of gaming, I can inspire you to reach out and tell me your story. Point out the things that I missed. Please feel free to share those memories of loving the big weird world of playing pretend. The first game I ever remember playing was Super Mario Bros. 3. I was sitting on the floor of my big brother's room. He had a TV on the edge of a desk. It was a blue tabletop, white sides. Him being the oldest, he was always Mario. My sister was Luigi. When I became too annoying to ignore, I got unplugged remotes, or for a single life I got a chance and then the controller was taken away because I was wasting lives. 
It was so long ago now, it could all just be a false memory colored by time. Who knows, maybe they were really cool with it. Sometimes me and the siblings will get together and we'll talk about the rare times we convinced mom to play. When Mario jumped, she jumped. When there was a big leap, she leaned really hard into it. It was awesome. My grandparents had a Super Nintendo. Their house is where the cousins would face off on Street Fighter. Until the screamed accusations of cheating would get too loud to ignore and it was shut off and unplugged. I don't care what anyone says, spamming a punch when you're caught up against the back of the arena is cheating and it should be called out. My sister would own at Donkey Kong Country. I don't think I ever got past the Hornet boss on my own. The original murder hornet. Biking over to the next farmhouse because the neighbor had an N64. This is a safe place and I like you folks so I think there's room for honesty here, right? I hate the N64. I never understood people's love for Goldeneye. I pretend like I like it when polite company, but everyone looked at each other's screens, knew the maps better, and all I got from that game was killed. It was a stupid game with a dumb controller. How are you supposed to even hang on to the fucking thing? There's three prongs to it. It didn't make any sense. It was terrible. Like stubby little fingers never fully wrapped around it. Now, the Game Boy Color on the other hand, that was my system. My god, I love that little device. Double Dragons and Pokemon were my two games. I had a little lamp that plugged into the side so if we were on a drive I could have a little bit of light while I played. And I got one all to myself. I didn't have to share, I didn't have to let anyone save their game on it, it was mine. This little purple rectangle of awesome. Lots of people around my age talk about what their first Pokemon game was. I was red, little brother was yellow, I, I think. I beat that game so many times. It sucks, I looked for it the other day, I dug around in all these old bins of my childhood stuff and it's lost to time, gone forever. Probably in an old book bag somewhere with a moldy lunch I never took out. Thinking about that system is what inspired this episode. Going to school and playing on the bus the whole way there. Finding the corner of the school that cast enough shade so that you and the other nerds could game a little on recess. While the cool kids walked around the track with their girlfriends. Lame. This is where rumors of catching a mew were shared. I was given directions to my first easter egg. An easter egg is a hidden message. It's a feature or joke inside of a video game. It originates from the 1979 video game Adventure for the Atari 2600. Warren Robinette was a programmer and Atari had a policy of not including the programmers names on the box because Atari thought it would mean their competitors would try to steal these gifted persons from their teams. Warren decided to hide a fuck you of sorts in the game for this lack of acknowledgement. If the player moved their character to a specific location on the map, which was later dubbed the Grey Dot, during a specific part of the game, they could enter a locked portion of the map where a message was displayed. Created by Warren Robinette. Warren didn't tell Atari and soon left the company after the game was released. Who knows if he thought anyone would ever find this middle finger to the establishment. 
Well, it didn't take long before a player did. Atari was pissed, but their software development division leader saw the potential and begged them to continue this. He knew that it would keep hardcore gamers playing and replaying Atari games going on these easter egg hunts for the little extras. Turns out that Warren wasn't the first to do this. But how cool of a story is that? It's punk rock and outsider. It's exactly what being a nerd is supposed to be. Oh, I am so sorry. I don't fit in? I'm not cool enough? Fine, fuck it. I'll be off fighting dragons in my room. Thanks, douche. Consider the times, 1979, no internet. This was all whispered and spread throughout the community or self-discovered over and over again by different people. Well, they just mashed buttons or explored to see what else could happen. An urban legend that turned out to be true. Like crocodiles in the sewer system. Probably. It's like how we all learned the tips and tricks to getting a Nintendo cartridge to play. Blowing into it or sliding an empty case in and above it to push it down. Turning it on and off fast three times. My first Easter egg was with my public school friends, Justin and Max. Who knows? But they showed me how to get to Misigno in Pokemon. Slight clarification before anyone flips on me and says this is a glitch, not an Easter egg. As a casual, I reserve the right to paint with a broad brush, and I don't care. It was cool as fuck. So what you gotta do is you go to the northern part of Viridian City and watch the old man's demonstration on how to catch a Pokemon. Then fly to Cinnabar Island. Surf up and down along the east coast of the island until Miss Igno appears. When it goes to battle you, run away. The sixth item in your inventory will be duplicated 128 times. Let's say you have a Master Ball. You only get one Master Ball in the course of the entire game because they're an insta-catch. So it's too powerful and game-breaking to have multiple Master Balls, right? Mwah. Maybe you want to get rich, but still play the game relatively fairly. Place a golden nugget in your sixth spot, and then you can buy anything. Pokeballs, buffs, evolving stones. If you're all about leveling up your Pokemon to get those evolutions and fill your Pokedex, rare candy is the way to go. Fair warning, messing around with the Easter egg can corrupt the game and mess up your Hall of Fame. Back in the day, there was all these like warnings like, well you can do this, but if you catch Misigno, your game will crash and you'll never be able to play it again. It could even wreck your Game Boy. This nostalgia got me interested enough to build my own Game Boy. I bought a G-Pi case off of Amazon and it was really intimidating at first because essentially you had to get a computer chip, this Raspberry Pi, fit it into the system, and then follow a couple tutorial programs, download uh, the games, and learn how to install it all. You, know, you had to friggin' program the thing. But, you can then play anything from the original Nintendo to Sega Mega Drive, to even the Game Boy Advance. It's amazing, and I love it. I did forget how much of a pain in the ass it is to have to keep swapping out AA batteries. We've come a long way, and I'm easily spoiled. <laughs>
So, it's nice to be reminded of the bad old days, I guess. By the way, people have hacked the old Nintendo games, all the old Game Boy games, even some of the new Game Boy Advance games, and rewritten their own games to create these whole new experiences. There's even a Pokemon game where you get to play as Team Rocket, the villains from the Pokemon series. It is amazing and so cool and the game I always wanted. Playing as a villain in the Pokemon world is really compelling. Running around and stealing Pokemon, fighting Red, getting hints about the war that tore apart the world and killed off all the adults. Ever wonder why every new game there's this kid that seemingly has no parental oversight and his dad's missing? Well, the war. How are these 10-year-old trainers left unattended in the woods when you come across the, the bug catcher trainer? Because the war, they don't have any parents, they're all orphans. Did you know people are still composing music with the old system? It's called chiptunes. And if you need something chill to relax to while you're writing or reading, highly recommend it. If I wasn't lazy, you should be hearing some now underneath the episode. Speaking of which, for the entire run of the NHL series from EA, people have collected all of their favorite songs and put them onto playlists on Spotify. It's really nostalgic and a lot of fun. <sighs> All my memories pre-grade 8 are hazy and indistinct. Something comes back occasionally, but usually it's just cringe-worthy things I'd rather forget. Striking out in slow pitch using an overhand swing. Strutting across the playground on the first day back to school with my Guy Fieri slash Ricky from Trailer Park Boys uh, shirt that had these flames and dragons on the sides. 90s kids might remember the cringe. Hurting my back for the first time, jumping off a swing, having to go to the hospital because of it. All to say, it's not a great loss for getting that weirdness. I can remember that there were some amazing shared experiences in gaming and beating a boss. Talking about a game at school and connecting. Of finally being able to focus on something and accomplish a task not being held to anyone else's standards of success. Around this time I was discovering my games, my style. 2D platformers are cool, but they're just not my jam. It's not something I usually seek out and I rarely complete. I've already shared my horror at seeing my big brother play Resident Evil. At the time it was so real and seeing zombies crash through fucking windows with limited ammunition and healables freaked me the fuck out. I am man enough to admit I ran. All the way through the basement, up the stairs, into my room, to be safe above ground with my dog as protection. And yes, I had nightmares. And I have never played one since. This failing of the PlayStation was forgiven because I also got Crash Bandicoot and Spyro the Dragon. It was never about the story or beating the game. It was the triumph of figuring out a near impossible puzzle. It was zen and calming. I could master this even when I was failing in school. Having to go to tutors or get pulled out of class, this was something that I had control over. 
Every weekend I could dream about what I'd ask for for Christmas or my birthday. The two times a year I could ask for a video game. When I was watching Electronic Playground, I got to imagine each of these things. It was like window shopping in your own home. I guess we can do that now with Amazon so it's not special, but back in the day it was amazing. Not to get overly sidetracked, but weekends were awesome. We had Recess, Weekenders, Gargoyles, Batman. For a time, Weird Al even hosted a kids show. And then Electronic Playground came on. Every segment, I'd set my sights on the game that I must have. It was just a video game review show. They talked about what was cool about each game. Uh, they had reviews on the run, which was a great segment. They just walked through the city and quickly go through four or five games. This is also where I learned to never trust someone who is paid to review a game. It took me longer to learn than I want to admit that they were obviously paid by these companies and they needed to keep them happy so they could keep reviewing big titles. So if a game sucked, they couldn't say so. It's like watching Sports Central or whatever your sports channel of choice is. They're hard-pressed to say a team is sucking donkey nuts. It's all neutral double talk. It's prepared me for trying to listen to politicians talking and never really saying anything. But all in all, the PlayStation 1 was amazing. It had this simple gray space-age design. A slick remote that fit into my hands. Oh my god. Twisted Metal. Anyone remember that game? Another game not played in front of the parents because they may have taken it away if they knew how violent it was. It was a racing demolition derby style game where you pick up rockets and guns and destroy the shit out of your opponents. It was so cool. There was this ice cream truck with a clown's head on the top that is so iconic of that game series. I wonder if I could find that game again. There was also the original Tomb Raider where you tried to help Laura Croft through these ancient ruins with her giant triangular boobs and horrifying drowning sequence. So if the PlayStation was occupied and I didn't have batteries for the Game Boy, I also had the computer. Mum had installed Command and Conquer on there for me. The cutscenes were all filmed live action so it felt like it was these little movies you unlocked as you played. Progress too far and you would have to change discs because the game was too big for one CD. I'd dabble in the missions a little bit but mostly I would just sit there uneasy and build a base and massive army for hours then just overwhelm my computer opponent. By no means was I playing against Deep Blue, but I can't express to you why this was so satisfying. I don't have the words for it. But a nice, organized base, multiple resource points, I could lose an entire afternoon doing it. I've been tempted to pick up one of the Civilization games uh, at the suggestions of one of my friends, Zach, because apparently this series is really similar, but better rewards my style of resource management and base development. I wonder if this is why I hated Farmville so much. I had a deep and passionate loathing for that game. Maybe it's because I just understood its allure. At its peak in March of 2010, they had over 83 million monthly users. 
34 million daily users. It has fallen over the past decade basically into obscurity, but the idea that people would pay real money for virtual chickens and shrubs by converting their money to farm bucks and running ads was revolutionary to the industry. For good and for ill. Here's a free game. Would you want to be competitive? Give us some money. The online version of Razor and Blades Economics. Pay to play. In 2013, revenue was an estimated $1 billion for Farmville. For a game that realistically took less than $500,000 to build. Not a bad return on investment. This model had a ton of interesting new money-making schemes. Construction times on building or farming resources could take tens of hours. So pay us our game currency and we will reduce the build time. Who has 27 hours to wait for your shipyard to complete your new dreadnought? Not me. The galaxy needs its hero. $6 for 10,000 coins doesn't even seem that bad. I'll admit, there was a game I got this into, back when I had Apple. Fuck me, it was easy to spend $50 and not know how you did it because you were up late, high off your ass, and just used your pre-authorized iTunes account to spend $5 here or there. A personal opinion is that the video game industry saw this and got a bit money hungry. How could they not? Mobile gaming in 2019 generated 60% of the revenue for the global video game market. My research indicated it was something like $49 billion, with $16.9 billion in profit. Annually growing by 2.9%. By 2024, it should be on track to generate $56.6 billion. If gamers were willing to pay $3 for a virtual hat, what else could game developers charge for? Enter Electronic Arts, EA. It's in the game. The big bad in a lot of people's eyes when it comes to games development. By buying up all the promising developers, paying top dollar for all the best titles, they kinda control a lot of video gaming. They do good work, don't get me wrong. It's just, it's more soulless corporation than artistic pursuit. The internet is getting faster and faster and being in the middle of it, it's hard to see. Going back to 2010 from now, it would seem horrifyingly slow. Going back to 95, being on dial-up would be crippling. With this increase in reliability and speed, online gaming has become the dominant focus of most game developers, especially the big ones like EA. Back in my day, the best you could hope for was local area network or LAN. LAN is when you would connect your computer or consoles to each other, uh, to each other's systems or computers hardwire. So no internet, just plug from one thing to the other. And a bunch of people would get over, if you're having like a sleepover, you'd pack up your little console or computer, you'd go there and everybody would set it up. And I was rural for most of this time, so I missed out on a lot of that era. But in college, we would hook it up from 
like all the way across the hall and just kind of tape it down and ignore the RAs when they give us shit for it. And we did that for the first couple of months, but then it just happened to coincide with the eve of one of the biggest moments in my gaming life. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 on the PlayStation 3. I was good at it. I have a hard time saying that I'm good at anything, but for this, I can. I was damn good. I'd be there, sitting in my dorm, playing with the guys, up and down the hall. We got hours in each day. I could cook a grenade, yeah, pull the pin and wait, throw it blind over a wall, and get a multi-kill. Just because I knew the flow of the map so well. Like, I wasn't even top tier, but I could hold my own on any day of the week. I had most of the achievements in the multiplayer online. Overall, Domination was my game. Team Deathmatch, I could play, but I was weaker. I still remember hearing the dogs in the distance, and it will always induce a sense of panic in me. Um, they would jump out and go for your neck in the campaign and you'd have a knife and you'd have to time it just right to stab at the dog or you would die. Online when they were released as a kill streak, they were instant death to me. I never got past them. This was still in that brief period when you purchased a game, you were purchasing the whole game. And that wouldn't last for long. You ended up paying for the game a bunch of different ways. Let's say $70 plus tax for the game. Pay for a monthly subscription to the PlayStation Network. Paying for the season pass so you could get day one release of new maps and game modes. Probably about 60 bucks for that. PlayStation Network, the PSN, you're probably 14 bucks a month, I think. And because online gaming was getting bigger and bigger, the campaign got smaller because no one wanted to play it anymore. They just wanted to play online. The story was hatcheted out to make room for the mindless battle the game could provide. As we continue, the invention of loot crates comes in. And this is where people start getting really pissed off. Um, you would pay to open these boxes and it'd be randomized what would be in there. Could be new uniforms, weapon skins, camouflage. That's not so bad, that's all cosmetic. But then this was how they'd also release the new guns. They'd have faster rate of fire, more power. And fuck you if you think you can keep up with the kids that can throw cash after cash on a game. You don't wanna know what the biggest kick in the nuts is? Pay for all that and they release a new game every two years or so. Every year if it's a sports game. And everyone goes to the new game to pay for this all over again. And you're left with a half-hearted campaign you already beat in empty lobbies because no one plays the old game anymore. I am mostly talking about Call of Duty because that's the games I played, but you saw this through most other titles. EA just being the worst gouger. Something to be said for the retro gamers, man. You can still pick up Super Mario and have fun, or Sonic or Donkey Kong, and you know what you're getting into. More than 20 years later, they're still fun. 
and these $70, $80 games with all these other pluses that you gotta buy have an expiration date of a year or so. <sighs> that being said, the world has a funny way of figuring out a way to balance itself out, uh, a way to be cool. We have been given games that are free to play now and make their money selling add-ons, but the add-ons are all cosmetic and don't affect gameplay. Fortnite, I guess, is massive, but that's for a younger generation to understand and explain. Me and my friends have Apex Legends. Within its first month of release, it made $92 million across all platforms. In 2020, it should make between $200 to $300 million. Holy fuck! For something that was given away free, that's amazing! It's a part of the new playstyle known as Battle Royale. A bunch of teams drop on a map, gather guns, supplies, and armor, then battle it out. Unbelievably hard to get your head wrapped around, honestly. It took me over 8 months before I was getting consistent kills. And now I love it. I still suck, but I love it. Maybe it's the game, but I think it's the people I'm playing with. 20 teams of 3 squads land in Apex. There are 13 legends that the players can choose from, one legend per team. Each has their own abilities, so you have to be tactical with your choice. What's your playstyle? What's the team's playstyle? Are you aggressive? Gonna go for a hot drop? Try to hit an area with a bunch of other teams and duke it out? Or are you defensive, hit far off the map, pick some good stuff up and try to vulture other teams that have gotten themselves into a fight and are already weakened? Shout out to the vultures, that's my style. Everyone starts at the same point. You're on a dropship going over this massive map in a linear direction. Each team can choose when they want to launch based on where they want to land. Gotta be careful because if you get into a hot drop and you don't have the reaction time of Bruce Lee, you're fucked, bud. If you or a team member gets knocked down early, your squad is outnumbered and, again, you're fucked, bud. You're not going to a previous save, you can't just relaunch. You have to get your team to pick you up. If you get killed, they gotta collect your banner. That is if it hasn't already timed out. Now you have to sit there through the rest of the match, watching your team play. If they get your banner, and they make it to a beacon, they can recall you. But you gotta hope that another team doesn't see an easy mark as the ship comes in and drop you back into the game. You have no guns, no armor, Nothing but your dick swinging in the breeze. Maybe this is just a jumbled mess. Maybe I am boring the shit out of you. These game mechanics are crafted by amazingly creative, interesting people. To steal a phrase from Jacob McCourt of the Left Behind Game Club podcast, Chef's Kiss. Mwah. Apex just released another never-seen-before game mode we have to collect a set amount of treasure packs on the map during the week. You can only get one per day. I think it's like four per week to unlock this weekly quest or story mode. It's such a simple and clever idea. My gaming group of about four to six people started over two years ago. 
with Call of Duty World War. We got angry at the costs, and when the new game came out, we were left behind, not wanting to spend all that money over again. There was guys trying to put money away for a wedding, a house, their kid's future, a new roof. You know, coming up with $140 for something that we were going to just waste time at was hard to do. Oh, next step is going to be about trying to buy a house and how fucked that is for our generation. But let's stay on task. If Apex didn't come out, we might have disbanded. Which would have been sad. I know it can't last forever, but it's really nice to know that for 20 minutes or 2 hours I can sit down and catch up with my best friends. Play a few rounds and talk about the world or nothing at all and enjoy each other's company. It's kinda awesome, we're there for all the updates, the new maps, new character releases. Checking in on everybody, seeing if they're getting on often enough so they can do their quests. At the end of the day, I might be alone in the city. But I have my friends for our sessions every day off. When I'm at work, I get sent updates on how well they did or didn't do that night. I have them literally in my ear and virtually on my couch, chirping about how it's not their fault they just got killed again. We share in every championship, however infrequently that happens. Even mom tries to be supportive when she hears me come in for a smoke break and a coffee, telling us to get a win, asking about the guys. Well, as supportive as she can be until her 31-year-old basement-dwelling son vomits cuss words against the walls and ceilings when he plays like shit. The game has been a gift. Apex has been a gift. All our worlds coming together for a few minutes. We shoot the shit and wait while one guy puts his kids to bed or another finishes a game of crib with his wife. And then we all jump on. This time is special. It reminds me of living out west. It feels like a million years ago now. As much as I hate it, I fear I am drifting away from those guys a little bit. But that time out west with those people must never be forgotten. Every Saturday we would sit down with a case of beer. Every Saturday night. For years. Hotel must love us. We spent a lot of money there and play through NHL seasons. When one season ended, the next week we would start a new one. We talked politics, girls, relationships, aspirations and dreams. Here we told each other major life events. We had bickering fights, laughs and inside jokes. We said goodbye when one had to move on to another opportunity. We saved a man's life. We drank so much beer, learned to play with the smoke tucked into your fingers and how to draw a penalty so you could ash or get rid of the butt because it was burning your fingers. Every once in a while we would have these 8 hour sessions where we pulled my TV into a sunroom or garage in the summer, filled a 100 year old hand crank washing machine with ice and beer. We would play until someone's wife called them home. Up north it doesn't get dark until 10 or 11 at night, so it can be deceiving how late it just got. Smoke breaks outside in minus 40 weather. We watched the stars, rambled about whether or not a flock of birds were actually UFOs. 
We would do these drafts and have complicated point systems for trades. I'd leave my door unlocked so while I was at work if someone needed to drop by and make a trade they could just walk right in. I've been told I am a nice person. Overly polite. Blah blah blah. But these guys saw the evil streak in me. And most outsiders will never understand the joy of giving one of your close friends star players a career-ending injury out of spite because they were running up the score. There is a delicate, beautiful joy in doing such a thing and knowing there is nothing they can do about it other than sit there with a stupid look on their face while they realized they butchered a second line to have an all-star that might now miss the playoffs. Oh my god, I love it. I'm smiling right now. Just even talking about it. Oh my god. It's the look on the face. Can you fucking do that? Just did, didn't I? I hope one day before too many years pass, we have a chance to do it again. Maybe this time with less beer. Hangovers are near impossible to shake anymore. I, I don't know if we can go back. Catching lightning in a bottle doesn't work, let alone trying to do that twice. But we can have a new adventure. More than anything, I just want to enjoy their company one more time. Catch up and make a turkey to prove how awesome they are. The self-indulgent rant ain't done yet, so buckle up. Writing this out reminds me of all the other moments I've been lucky enough to be a part of. Like that unair-conditioned attic with a tiny tube TV that had a VCR built in. A basement where after my first summer job in high school working as a meat packer, you know, the one that I had a cold the entire summer because I worked in a fucking freezer, my friend would come over and pick me up and we'd go to his parents' basement to enjoy Milkshake, the first pong we ever named. If I'm not wrong, it was named so because Milkshake brought all the boys to the yard. This guy's parents overstocked their fridge so we would rummage around and create these massive awesome meals and we would play co-op shooters. There's a post-college dive living room with these three couches that had to be like fourth or fifth hand. Where I played Star Wars Battlefront 2 with an awesome friend I haven't spoke to in years. I'd rollerblade home from my industrial cleaner job with a case of beer and she and I would just play and talk shit. All these places, attic, living room, basements, they all just coalesce into the singular idea, this idyllic basement hangout picture I have in my head. Some movies have captured this image perfectly. You know, I always think of Wayne's World first off. And I'm grateful I've gotten to enjoy this moment a few times in my life. In the house I grew up in, my dad had built my older brother a bedroom at the back of the basement. The rest of the basement was unfinished, so you'd walk off the steps, you'd see this massive basement with undried walled insulation exposed all along the walls, a sump pump in the corner, a ping pong table to one side, and we'd cotton at a yard sale. We had tournaments for a couple of months, almost daily. And then when everybody got bored of it, I would set up my G.I. Joes and have target practice with my BB gun when they were standing up on Jenga blocks. Oh. And then there was my big brother's room. It was almost like its own apartment. He had a massive TV in there. And not just screen size, it was like 
two and a half feet deep. It was placed into a wall shelving unit my father built. He had a big couch that had a mini fridge as a side table. This is the first place I had a beer. This is the first place I had a jello shot. It was left on top of the mini fridge and like it had to have been there for like two months and it hardened into this like jolly rancher kind of thing. I ate it. It was disgusting. I'm pretty sure I puked. Behind the couch was a bookshelf with an amazing selection of VHS tapes, both legit and then taped off the TV. Everything from Porky's to The Last Starfighter. Hanging from the roof was models that were built and airbrushed at this big desk in the corner. There was another shelf that held a collection of Star Wars figures. This is where I discovered the difference between sand troopers and scout troopers. He even had a speeder bike that would blow up when you hit this button. And a satellite receiver in his room, which was... Wow, the independence. I was introduced here to the greatest American hero, Baywatch, A-Team, Knight Rider. I'm smiling, and these are all moments that were gifted to me by gaming. I have Apex, but I'm getting greedy in my old age and want to start experimenting with new ideas, new adventures with more groups of people. I just started playing Dungeons and Dragons with a group of folks from work. We all have our notions of D&D, I, I get it, but let me try and sell you on it now. At its core, all that it is, is cooperative storytelling. One person takes on the role of narrator, giving the players settings and villains. The players react to these elements, everyone feeding off each other and pushing the story forward. Together you come up with the plot. They choose which doors they open. They choose the fights they avoid. And the dice dictates how well you do fucking any of it. It's awesome. If you ever played an RPG, you have the core concepts. I suggest you check it out with some friends. Tell a story and have a great time. And if I've piqued your interest but you don't have a group, I was given my love of tabletop RPGs like this from podcasts like the Glass Cannon Podcast or not another D&D podcast and The Adventure Zone. You know what, let's set a goal. By 2022, I'll run a campaign on this feed. I think you'll enjoy it. It's too early to talk about here, but there's another video game related announcement that will be coming to the feed. Hopefully within the next few weeks. I already hit some of these numbers, but I'm gonna go back over them again. In Apex first month of release, they made over $90 million from in-game spending across all platforms. EA will generate about $240 million in subscription revenue alone this year. Even then, it's not the top grossing battle royale game. Fortnite brought in $300 million in its first 200 days on Apple's iOS platform. The game is free to play. You can purchase skins and dances. It's made the most out of any game on iOS in the first 200 days of availability. Fortnite brought in $1.8 billion in revenue in 2019, which is actually down from 2018. I 
don't know how accurate any of these numbers are. I've never played Fortnite. The dances are off-putting to me and caters to a younger crowd, but think about that. That's some serious friggin' money, man. And you know what? Making games aren't the only way to make money on video games these days. There is a new, massive industry in streaming. Streaming is essentially where people watch someone else play online. I think Twitch is the main service. But I have heard of streamers moving to various platforms with promise of pay because they bring their hundreds of thousands or millions of fans with them. The top earner of 2019 was Tyler Ninja Blevins. His Twitch earnings netted him a mind-blowing $500,000 a month. $500,000 a month. When Ninja was on Twitch, he had more than 160,000 paid subscribers and nearly 13 million followers. These paid subscribers paid $5 a month to Twitch. In return, this streamer got about $2.50 for each paid subscription. That means that Ninja made about $400,000 just from Twitch subscriptions alone. Combine this with his YouTube channel where he has another 22 million subscribers, which monetizes differently than Twitch, but he had more than uh, 35 million viewers on his content channels, which all have ads and generate more money. Ninja brings in even more money through his partnerships and deals. He's partnered with uh, different companies, uh, Samsung, Red Bull, Uber Eats, and Adidas. In August of 2019, Ninja made the announcement that he'd be moving his streams exclusively to Microsoft's streaming platform, Mixer. With this move to Mixer, he signed an undisclosed contract. Experts say that this contract could be as high as $100 million. It's a guess, but it is certainly tens of millions of dollars. Plus the money from his subscribers. But a $100 million deal to switch over, that is wild, man. For playing video games. There's another gamer out there, Shroud. He has amassed a very dedicated and large following of gamers. The last estimate from sources stated Shroud was worth nearly $3 million as of 2018, but he also moved to Mixer for money. When Shroud was streaming on Twitch, he averaged nearly 650,000 views per day. These viewers watch ads over the course of the stream and these ads generate revenue. From these advertisements comes money and it's estimated Shroud made about $1,200 a day or $440,000 per year from these advertisements alone. Most streamers who play competitive video games like Shroud on Counter-Strike are signed on to a team. Uh, Shroud is a part of uh, a gaming team called Cloud9. These teams are partnered with sponsors like HTC, Logitech, and many more gaming tech companies. With these sponsorships comes money. And free gear. Pro gaming is still the Wild West. There is no government agency overseeing decency on streaming sites, and the personalities making the most noise aren't always peddling the most high-minded material.
So with anything, do some research before you jump in. Today there's so many different games that you could get into. Some take interactive storytelling to the next level with little actual gameplay but with complex, interesting stories like the Telltale games. I haven't had a chance to play Wolf Among Us or the Walking Dead series, but I have been told they are amazing. Throughout the story, you're faced with options of where you're going to go and what you might do to investigate further. The really interesting aspect is the moral questions of how you conduct yourself and interact with the other characters. At the end of each chapter, you can see the statistics on how other players choose to move through their story world. I wonder what the future holds for this kind of story-based gameplay as VR technology continues to evolve. Well folks, with that, I'm going to leave you just to ponder that a little bit. But before I do, I want to recommend Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. It's a book, and there is a movie out, and the movie's good, but it's not the same as the book. The book is amazing. Will Wheaton reads it. Uh, if you want to get the audiobook, he's the guy who played Wesley Crusher on Star Trek Next Generation. It's brilliant, fun, with a ton of 80s and 90s nostalgia plugged into it. It also has a really interesting take on what the future of gaming could be in a dystopian future. I hope you folks are doing well. Don't forget to take a moment, log off your device, go outside, an owl at the moon. Hoot hoot. Good evening. Tonight we begin with a story about make-believe adventure and real-life violence, and what some critics fear is a connection between the two in a game called Dungeons and Dragons. Millions of children and teenagers now play Dungeons and Dragons. They are drawn to the adventure, fantasy, and suspense the game creates through mythical characters and complex situations. But increasingly, parents and psychiatrists are warning that the game is taking some children too far into the realm of dark and violent fantasy. They wonder whether for some children, Dungeons and Dragons becomes more than just a game. Carol Jerome prepared this report. Okay, you enter a very small room, and there's a large black coffin right in the center. The gate's shut behind you. It looks like a few boys around a table, but in their minds, they're fantastical characters in another world, a darker world. Ole is a cavalier. Erwin is a paladin. Dennis is a ranger. Mikey is an illusionist. And Bill is a magic user. Nicholas is a fighter, and his little brother Matthew is a thief. In today's adventure, Mike the Dungeon Master leads them to a castle where they are attacked by wolves in the woods. What are you guys going to do? I'm going to draw my sword and use my second attack instead okay. of attacking. What do you do? Together, they meet each challenge set by the Dungeon Master according to their character, which can be good or evil. They have magic weapons and spells to use to battle men and half-humans and monsters. And each has an elaborate scoring sheet for his character, 
with points for wisdom and strength and the like. A throw of these special dice decide the outcome of battles in an intricate scoring system. Okay, Nothing is acted out. The real action is in the okay. mind. Now you guys are entering the castle. So you have basically the doors are open to the castle. Sort of somebody taunting your mind saying, come and get me. Suddenly five zombies come up grabbing your leg. What are you going to do? I like to hit him with my sword plus three. Okay, you roll the dice. Okay, you do sufficient damage and you cut off its arm, you dismember it. But you notice that the arm that you cut off is still hanging onto your leg. It's not as simple as old-fashioned cowboys and Indians. The goal here is to survive okay. each adventure and gain points for killing enemy humans and monsters and gather treasure along the way. But this medieval fantasy world is so detailed, so real, that some say it has caused kids to kill in the real world. Since these games are so violence-oriented, you do not just play at the game, you become the game. You are the game. Pat Pulling's son, Bink, shot himself in the heart three years ago, hours after a suicide curse was put on his character as he played D&D, &D, as the game is called. Notes he left linked his suicide to the game. Pat Pulling formed a group called BAD, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. Along with the National Coalition of Television Violence in the States, BAD documents 28 cases of juvenile murder and suicide they claim are linked to D&D. &D. They say it's the general violence and playing with evil characters, suicide curses and pretend human sacrifice in the game that trigger the tragedies. Ironically, the publicity about one of these cases in 1979 made sales skyrocket. It has been linked in suicide notes, police reports and coroner's reports. There have been recently a couple of accidental killings, one in particular uh, related to the game where the boy thought he was a god, therefore he begged his brother to shoot him to prove that he was deified, and in fact, of course, the boy died. I feel they're overreacting a lot. Like, I don't think that this game promotes death or anything. Not the way we play it, anyway. You know, I can tell the difference between reality and fantasy. Just about everyone I play with can. Sure, there's bloodshed and everything, but I think it's better to shed it in the game than out in real life. My adopted daughter, the fair Irina, has been these past nights bitten by a creature called... The game's public relations man says the children in the murders and suicides, including Bink Pulling, had other emotional problems already, and notes other elements like the presence of guns in the home. There has been zero deaths as the cause of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, the game is played by some three to four to almost five million people now uh, in Canada, in the United States, uh, throughout the world. In fact, 15 other countries. And uh, the game is built around cooperation. Come on, everybody! The Dungeons & Dragons ride! Started in 1973 on a $1,000 loan, D&D now earns $30 million a year for its Wisconsin manufacturer, TSR, with spin-offs like this television cartoon series. There is no escape from the realm of Dungeons & Dragons. Few girls play it, it's mainly teenage boys and they can spend hundreds of dollars on it in stores like Rigby's in Toronto. On monthly magazines, pocketbooks, guidebooks to over 40 different fantasy adventures and miniature figurines. And if they like, there are D&D video games too. Uh, 
At least three government studies in the States confirm a cause and effect relationship between consumption of violent entertainment and increased aggression. Police are also concerned about D&D, but they say they cannot make a conclusive judgment about its role in many of the murders and suicides. One of the most perplexing cases happened here in St. Louis, Missouri. Last April, an 18-year-old art student named Mary Towie was killed by two friends, Ron Adcox and Darren Molitor. All three played Dungeons and Dragons together, Darren intensively, up to 16 hours a day, sometimes sitting up all night with his character sheets. In his confession to the FBI, Darren included his alias, Demon Sammy Sager, his D&D fighter assassin name. Darren told police they were fooling around drinking at Mary's house while her parents were away, getting ready for a Friday 13th party, and tied her up to mess with her mind, then put a knotted elastic bandage around her throat and went upstairs to have a couple of beers. When they checked again, Mary was dead, the blood to her brain cut off by the bandage. Darren and Ron then stole valuables from the house, dumped Mary's body in this woods and fled in her car. When they were caught, they were each wearing one of her earrings. The point is, is Darren Molitor a cold-blooded killer, or did Demon Sammy Sager take over or change him? Darren's trial was first. The defense lawyer maintains that the game was a major factor in determining Darren's behavior, and he is asking for the lesser charge of manslaughter. The prosecution holds that the game has nothing to do with Darren's actions and is asking for the death penalty. Pat Pulling was here to testify. She and a defense psychiatrist say there are elements here that echo D&D patterns. First, the idea itself that tying someone up is a game. The Friday 13th motif, part of the superstitious magic of D&D. The messing with her mind, the robbery like plunder, the running for survival, the earrings like treasure. But no testimony about the game, including Pat Pullings, was allowed by the judge. And Darren's lawyer, Lee Patton, was angry at that, saying the court preferred an open and shut case. In the absence of Dungeons and Dragons, in the absence of the desensitization to violence, I think he probably would have called the police or taking some taking some other action rather than robbing and running darren told lee patton demon has never died and patton is not sure just what that means darren's parents don't know much about it but they feel the game is partly to blame and they say darren was worried that being demon might have affected him and he'd sign everything his papers they while he was going to school as demon Molitor. The prosecution is denying the testimony on the game. I heard. Do you think that's important that it be admitted? Yes, yes I do. I, can, I feel it'll turn the whole thing around. On Darren's behalf. The victim's parents feel differently. Our own thoughts have always been that, uh, that uh, Dungeons and Dragons were was totally irrelevant to the entire case, that this was a case strictly of, of robbery and, and homicide and, and nothing else. These were two people who wanted money in a car and were willing to do just about anything to get it and did. These police and FBI agents were struck by how coldly Darren talks about the killing and tend to believe he is just plain guilty. The judge agreed and ruled that Dungeons and Dragons had nothing to do with the death of Mary Towie. The jury found Darren Molitor, alias Demon Sammy Sager, guilty of first-degree murder, a life sentence, but no death penalty. As you near the castle, two of the stone gargoyles come from above. 
and swoop down trying to attack you. The crucial so, point well, is, can a game create psychosis, or is someone like Darren Molitor an accident waiting to happen, with or without the game? Supporters of D&D suggest it might even keep psychosis under control, providing an outlet. Can I give him a proper burial? But the killings and suicides are extreme cases of the issue. Matthew here cried for days when his character died, and Bill's mother says at one point he got too involved. I became concerned, and I spoke to the dungeon master about his behavior in the club. And he did admit that my son seemed to be becoming the character, taking on characteristics of his character. And uh, I felt the same way. And I asked that he not go to the game for a while, and he agreed. Here in Orangeville, another case raised the same questions. A 14-year-old boy, who cannot be named because he is a juvenile, strangled two young friends in this schoolyard. It was brought out in this Orangeville courtroom that the young defendant was deeply involved in playing Dungeons and Dragons and was in fact a dungeon master. But his preoccupation with the game was not considered a determining factor in forming his behavior, only typical of it. He was judged to have an obsessive compulsive mental disorder and was acquitted by reason of legal insanity. The boy will be under care in a psychiatric institution for as long as necessary. Meanwhile, the game goes on. D&D has been banned in some Canadian schools, but is used by others like this one in programs for gifted children. Some teachers feel this role-playing is valuable social interaction and say it even improves reading and mathematics skills and knowledge of mythology and history. Much depends on the dungeon master, the group leader who controls the scenario, putting in as much or as little blood and gore as he likes. Here, Denny is the dungeon master. Well, it gives you a great sense of control and power over other people. Because, like, you can determine what happens to the characters. And it's really kind of neat, the feeling of power you get from it. Does the game encourage or even create Denny's love of power, or is it a healthy outlet for it? In the manual itself, you warn the kids not to get their characters mixed up with themselves. Mm -hmm. It's not a warning. All it is a saying is that you understand this is a game, and you're playing a character, and that's it. Pat Pulling is suing TSR and the teachers who conducted the game in her son's school for $10 million. She wants research into the D&D phenomenon. We would like to see these violent games, such as Dungeons and Dragons, uh, taken out of toy stores and not pushed in school systems and remain for the adult population. Well, I think the parents should get into the game to see how it is, and then they can start judging if, they're, if they should let their child play or not. I only play here, and when I leave the store, I leave the game in the store. I go out and in the life. You guys bury the body properly. Perhaps this is the crux of the matter, how we deal with the undeniable love of violence in our species. D&D has taken it a step beyond even TV and movies and books, into the inner mind. Millions enjoy that voyage, but we don't really know how many others find unsuspected dragons in their psychic dungeons. How, then, do we deal with our demons? As you're walking over the drawbridge, the old rotten wood gives way beneath your feet, and you fall 1,500 meters down. So you have died. I'm sorry, but that's life. For The Journal, this is Carol Jerome in Toronto.